0: Hello everybody uh, and welcome to the Floodlit Dreams webcast. My name is Ian Ridley, I'm uh, the founder of Floodlit Dreams Publishing and um, I'm here with my partner in the business Seth Burkett. Say hello to the nice people Seth. <laughs> Hi everyone. <laughs> and more important we've got with us today Susie Petricelli, who is the author of the uh, new latest Flirt Dreams uh, release, Raise the Warrior, One Woman Soccer Odyssey, which we're very, very proud of, uh, winner of the um, Vicky Orweiss Prize. And uh, I'm delighted to say that um, Susie's book we released very early because of the lockdown, we released the Kindle. And um, it came out last Friday and went straight in at number one new release on Amazon.com mm-hmm. in the US on Kindle. So we were very gratified by that. And um, it was also number two in all soccer Kindles. So that that was superb. Um, The good news is we now have copies of the paperback. Um, We're pleased about. Um, The printers have printed it. Uh, Copies will be leaving uh, the depot finally next week. And hopefully all the pre-orders will be um, out to the people that that uh, have ordered them in the next couple of weeks, and then it will be on gen- general sale uh, on Amazon, on Waterstones, on various other websites, Barnes and Noble, and what have you. Uh, after that, so we're delighted about that. Finally, that this book is going to see the light of day. We were due to have a release <laughs> next week in New York. Unfortunately, that's that can't happen. But anyway, let's let's get on with it. Let's go to to. Susie, she's much more important than Seth and I. <laughs> Susie, how did it feel to wake up with it number one on Kindle last weekend?
1: Um, I thought I thought it had to be wrong. I couldn't believe it. Um, it was just an absolute shock uh, when I when it started to sink in that it was real. I had to take like I had to take a few breaths and take it in. Um, yeah, no, it was very exciting. My husband actually saw it first. Um, And he's been very calm about this whole process and is, you know, not easily impressed. And uh, so that that impressed him. So it was, was, you know, just amazing. Um, You know, and I also, you know, first thing I wanted to say was I haven't really had a chance to, to, um, you know, thank both of you. Um, It's, you know, uh, going, I guess, you know, going all the way back to the beginning, you know, you've been an ally of Vicky's, obviously. And women in football. Um, Then you participated in the what if pledge with them. And, um, you know, you were so kind to reply to me reply to my response to your, uh, your pledge. Um, And then this, you know, the whole process, you've just been so gracious with me, Um, your mentorship and friendship. And um, I just wanted to, you know, thank you both um, for your support. And obviously winning Winning the prize um, was the greatest honor of my life. So this whole thing has just been amazing. I just wanted to start by thanking Lucy, you
0: both. thank you. you. You've done it yourself. You're going to make me blush. It's a good job I'm in a room. <laughs> uh, I put a clean shirt on. I want people to think, by the way, I know, me too. Uh, that, I, that I'm that i like this in lockdown all the time <laughs> rather than slobbing around all day. I know, uh,
1: I showered.
0: But thank you for that. That's very generous of you. You've done this, though. It's your book, and it's it's a real really good book we should also acknowledge another person in floodlit dreams and that's charlotte Atio, yes. who's um who edited the book and helped craft it and make it what it is with you working with you so right and then also
1: from my side um you yeah. i had a lot of help from a young a young writer named rebecca bayer um mm. and, and she also was a tremendous help and is an amazing you know very talented writer and editor
0: good good yeah so let's go back to basics how and why did you decide you wanted to write a book, Susie?
1: You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. It's so many reasons, but um, I think, you know, the first, the biggest reason was that when I went through the experience of playing at Harvard, um, the girls there were so inspiring, um, you know, and we also had so much more fun together than I ever imagined a group of girls um, could could have. And, um, you know, they also just had this, amazing um i guess expectation of their own personal achievements that went beyond the soccer field obviously they had very high expectations on the soccer field but they also had these amazing like grand you know dreams for themselves after for after school um you know they taught me really to dream bigger always dream bigger and um they also helped me through you know as you guys both know the story they helped me through some harder times so i just wanted a, a way to honor them um And that's kind of where it started. And then, you know, after we, in a couple years after I graduated, we lost a few people that were very important to me and to us and to the team, um, including a couple of teammates. And, um, you know, it it was important to me to record the special things about them, remember the special things about them um, forever and share those things. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of our captain who, when I was a sophomore, she was our captain. Um, her name was Meg Rute, and she just had the most amazing, unique, infectious laugh. Um, and you know, she also was one of these people that she just wasn't shy about excelling at everything she tried. Um, so I just, you know, things like that, I just, so many stories I just felt like, you know, needed to be recorded and needed to be told and I felt like people would really enjoy them.
0: When you say lost, Susie, what, how do you mean by lost?
1: Well, we had a few people. So Meg um, actually ended up uh, passing away from complications from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Um, and um, we had my friend, uh, my teammate Emily, whose brother died from leukemia. Um, A friend of my brother's, a very dear friend of ours, as you guys know, Aaron, um, um, committed suicide uh, when I was, you know, later in my years at Harvard. Um, So we just, I just had a few people that we lost and it there were it was that feeling of you know we're not invincible you know we're gonna life isn't something to be taken for granted and you know if you see people in trouble um you need to reach out to them and tell their stories and and remember the good parts and and honor the people that we that we love and respect
0: which is obviously very relevant to the to times we're going through and there is there is a lot of pain there's a lot of joy in this book but there's a lot of pain too it, it doesn't pull any punches take us back to the beginning and how you how you became interested in soccer and, and the, the family you were a very sporty family but it was a male dominated family wasn't it
1: it was yeah my, my dad is very intense and um and you know the sports side of things really came from my dad and my grandfather who were American football players. Um, you know, they were both very well known in the Los Angeles area, uh, at their, you know, in their aid, in their era. Um, they both played at a, you know, big prep school here called Loyola. Uh, my grandfather went on to play at Loyola university and then he coached at Loyola high school and Loyola university, and then ended up being a scout uh, for this very early, um, iteration of a professional football team, uh, American football team uh, here in LA, in LA, uh, called the LA Dons. Um, And then my dad played at Lilla High School, and then went on and played at Stanford. And, um, you know, they, they just, sports was always around, even after my dad graduated from college, when we were babies, and there were, you know, four of us kids, um, we spent all our weekends at his rugby tournaments. Um, My mom would pack a picnic, and we just spend the whole weekend Uh, you know toddling around and you know trying to kick that giant rugby ball and things so um, so that's really you know how I spent my childhood I you know it turned out I was a tomboy too I wanted to play everything I obviously wanted to play football and baseball which as a girl I wasn't allowed to play which was disappointing I think mostly because I felt like I would have been pretty good at them both um and um But, you know, my dad was intense. And it was funny because I've come very full circle with my sort of view on how intense he was. And I'm actually so grateful now that he never differentiated between his his sons and his daughters. You know, he expected my sister and I to be just as fierce as, you know, he wanted my brothers to be. Um,
0: Yeah. Keep going. (laughs) Um, What would you say the most important lesson that he taught you was?
1: um you know so many things he taught me um obviously you know he always taught us that no matter how hard we thought we were trying and no matter how you know i guess how hard we thought we were pushing ourselves our bodies could do so much more our minds could do so much more um and um and the other thing that i think you know off the field something that always stuck with me and i think relates to the book very much and actually i tell the story is that he said, he always said, you know, you have to always take a moment in your life and look around and take everything in and slow down. And um, otherwise things will just go by really fast and, you'll, and it will be a blur and you'll miss it all. Um, so, you know, I think that was probably the best advice because I, I did, I, I remember those moments where I would hear his words in my mind and say, okay, this is that moment. Like appreciate that you're in your uniform, you're in your Harvard uniform for the first time. You're on a field for the first time that you can call your own home field. I never had my own home field on any soccer team I ever played for. So um, there were those moments that I always, you know, was like slow down, take it in, enjoy it. Um, Like, you know, like this, like I'm really trying to enjoy this too. Well,
0: why soccer Susie? Why not basketball or any, anything else?
1: So, you know, soccer was really the only sport that was offered to me. Um, It was also the first sport that was offered to me. Um, I mean, we played sports in our backyard and in our, you know, in the street with the neighborhood kids and obviously with my brother, but soccer was the first sport where they, you know, gave me a little uniform and they said, go. Um, and, you know, I, I luckily loved it right from the beginning. And um, so I don't know if it was that I wasn't, I loved it so much that I wasn't looking for another sport or if there weren't other sports really, you know, that that were available. Um, I also think, you know, my we were the the third and fourth babies of four kids. Right. So I think my parents probably, you know, had to kind (laughs) of, had to kind of keep it under control and, and limit, you know, limit things to what they could handle. Um, but I, you know, I just loved it. I, I, I got lucky that I was offered a sport that I
0: loved. And did you find quite quickly, you were good at it? Um, was it natural for you or did it have to be taught?
1: It was, it was natural. I mean, it's, it's natural to me now. Um, I, I still miss it. And um, I, you know, I see it a little bit, I think with my daughter, because she has to work a little harder to get the touch and, um, you know, even just the, the spatial things on the field and sort of that like goal-minded mentality. Like when I saw the goal and I saw the ball at my feet, I knew I had to get the ball on the goal, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think for some reason that just was natural. And, you know, I don't know if I can even explain it, but, um, yeah, I was, I was lucky and I just took so much, there was so much joy, um, Mm -hmm. you know, running around being faster than the boys. And, um, you know, I just, it became, it really became my source of pride, uh, my source of self-confidence. Um, you know, it really became like part of my soul.
0: And did you, did it help that your sister was good as well? The two of you working together?
1: Yes. Um, yeah, we were always teammates and it was, it was very nice to have your twin sister as your teammate, because, um, I always knew where she was going to be. I knew where she liked the ball. I knew, you know, I knew what kind of goals she liked to score. Um, yeah, we didn't have to talk very much on the field. Um, you know, off the field, it was different. It was a much more complicated relationship. Um, we're different, we're different people. She's very ambitious and driven and, and, um, and, um, clean and neat. And I wasn't that way at all. I was sort of the rough and tumble kid that liked to have dirt on my knees and scrapes on my knees. So, but on the field, it worked out, you know, we, we, um, we, uh, we had a very you know special relationship all the way, all the way through college. We played together at Harvard. So.
0: That's the great good. thing about a soccer team is that it's a blend of characters and abilities and, and, uh, and personalities really, you know, you don't, I think a lot of football fans find it quite odd that, that, Actually, a lot of footballers don't actually like each other very much sometimes. You know, I, going back years, some very big players have not liked other players in the same yeah. team, but they find a way of respecting each other and working with each other. It's, um, it, you can do that in, in the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think it's, it's a, it, I do think that when you can find that chemistry in a team, you know, with the mutual respect with the coach also, and, you know, mutual respect with the teammates, um, you know you can go very far I think when you when you enjoy each other though off the field as well um, and not just sort of you know have that working relationship I think that's when it really goes to the next level you know um, and we, we had that at Harvard we it was you know and actually I think the girls still have that now we, we definitely as the alumni try to foster that culture and um, you know we try to we try to make sure that they know that it, it is more than just it is more than just a game obviously and and, um, you know, we want them to be like, you know, I mean, actually, our, one of my teammates wrote a soccer series, a book series called Soccer Sisters. Um, and, um, and, you yeah, that's really, you know, that's really what we go for. We really want our all of our alumni, the whole Harvard women's soccer community to be um, soccer sisters.
0: So how did the, the offer come, come about for you to, to go to Harvard? Because you had choices, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I had a couple choices. Um, you know, I, I got very lucky because uh, I ended up playing for a program in the United States called ODP, Olympic Development Program. They still have that program now, but the, the system in the United States has sort of been muddled by a few different competing um, leagues. And it's not as clear how you get to the, how do you get to the national team anymore? Um, but at our time, the, the ODP was the only way to go. So I ended up playing in an Olympic Development Program tournament at Nike headquarters in Portland, um uh, must have been uh, my junior year and the, a bunch of co- college coaches were there um Harvard was there uh, Duke North Carolina um most of the ivies Dartmouth um all kinds of you know amazing coaches and um a few of them approached me i just happened to have a game where i had a diving header um and it, the ball it didn't go in the goal but it hit off the post and went out um and oh, after that so
0: day- you were so flash
1: uh, no actually, it was very lucky I, that was my only diving header my whole life for a goal. so um it just happened that there were a bunch of coaches there and so they a bunch of them approached me after the game um and um you know we ended up you know then you sort of have a relationship on the phone and um you go on a few recruiting trips and um you know my parents had both gone to stanford obviously and Fouty, julie Fouty, my hero was at stanford um so i I'd always imagined that's or dreamed, I guess I should say, that I, would, that I would get to go there. It was a big dream, it was obviously very hard to get into, um, and an amazing soccer school. Um, so, my sister and I ended up, long story short, getting into both uh, Stanford and Harvard. Um, and she knew right away that she wanted to go to Harvard, and um, it, it was a good fit for her. She, you know, was very academic, she wanted to be a doctor, um, she also was very attached to my grandmother who was in Connecticut. Um, and so she knew right away she was going to go to, to uh, Harvard. I kind of was still like, no, my dream is Stanford. My dream is Stanford. I can't, you know, it was amazing to get in. Um, and, um, at, you know, the last minute, very last minute, actually, after we had sent in all the paperwork and forms to the other schools, I, I just, something about it, you know, it's funny, I think part of it was that I, my mom had gone across country to go to school um, when she left, when, so she, my mom had grown up in Connecticut, and she you know, got on a plane and went to Stanford, and went all the way across country all by herself, having never been out of the Northeast. And I think part of it was that I always respected her courage to do that. Um, And then also with my sister, you know, deciding she was going to Harvard, I think I, you know, part of me was like, I, I think I want to go on that adventure with her. So, um yeah, so we ended up, both of us at, at Harvard, which was very, um, like, crazy and insane and such an amazing adventure.
0: So was it a culture shock for a California girl?
1: Total Fish out of water, culture shock. Um, yeah, it was it was hard at the beginning. I was unprepared. Um, it's funny, I, my even though my mom grew up in Connecticut, um, I don't think she gave us that much guidance on you know winter clothes and just even little things like that. Um, and then the you know there were bigger things about Harvard that I was unprepared for. You know where there were these social clubs and buildings that women weren't allowed in, um, and I had never really experienced that before um so there was you know it, it, there were some things that i were just confusing like have i gone back in time like wait why, why is it like this um but um you know i luckily i had the team and we had practice every day and we, i saw them every day at three o'clock um and um so i just you know just kept you know relying on the structure that that i always had uh had were you aware?
0: i mean i've i've visited harvard and yeah um, it is. It is an amazing place. The buildings are very kind of grand and intimidating, almost. And, yes. You know, you you. Did you feel I belong here, or did you think, "Oh my God, I'm kind this is a little intimidating"?
1: I at the beginning when I when I arrived, I definitely had you know sort of a youthful confidence. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to take Harvard by storm, and and that's that's not what happened. Uh, I was you know I was very humbled. Um, You know, it's there's a there's a sort of a social and academic hierarchy at Harvard um, and a female and a female athlete on top of it is not it's not at the top of the hierarchy. Um, So, um, you know, it it was it was intimidating. It was intimidating. And um, um, and then, you know, I got I got injured and I couldn't play soccer as well as I had expected to. So that sort of took away my biggest source of confidence. Mm -hmm. um so that even so you know then it was then it was really a struggle but but um but you know then took me you know several years but i started to realize like all of those things that i had been so concerned about and been complaining about and um really like in a grander perspective were so small compared to what women in other parts of the world have Mm -hmm. to go through and the barriers that they're facing Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's sort of where the, the, the story of the book goes is, is as I, you know, awaken to the fact that, um, yes, like I did have a few setbacks and a few, you know, stumbles, but, um, I had this amazing support system and, um, and now it's time my, you know, my turn to give back and try to help girls that, that are still struggling and have bigger, much bigger issues they're facing.
0: Tell us about your, your final year at Harvard. I mean, I don't want to spoil the entire book for, for people, but it, it really was uh, your, your years at Harvard really were quite a, an undulating journey, weren't they?
1: Yes. Um, as far as the soccer uh, story goes, it's a fun story because, you know, we have this we have this sort of uh, 1970s movie here uh, called The Bad News Bears. I don't know. It's a very yeah. American thing. Um, yeah. But um, and we were very much the bad news bears when I was a freshman. You know, we we were uh, we struggled. Oh, I lost an earpod. Um We uh, you know we we were not that great. We had our worst record. Harvard women's soccer had our worst record that year than we'd had I think in our history. Um, and um, but you know the the it, our the older girls on the team didn't let it bother them. They knew we were in a rebuilding phase and they were just so positive. And they also had a perspective. They're like, all right, guys, like, we'll be fine. We're at Harvard. Like we have all these other things going on. You know, we, we, we're gonna pick ourselves up. We're gonna dust ourselves off and we're gonna get them next year. Um, and then little by little, you know, we, we did. We, we, you know, reorganized. We, put, we got some new, um, we got an amazing few years of recruits coming in um and by the time I was a senior we and I got to be captain which was obviously such an honor um and um and we ended up winning the Ivy League in my last soccer game so it, you know I feel like it's it, it definitely has sort of that the, the right arc for a good sports story um and um and then you know the, the personal stuff and the emotional stuff and and you know also sort of trying to process not only how I got to Harvard but also, you know, all the experience of, uh, all the little experiences that girls have, that girls share, that they don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about, um, you know, I, I thought that was, a, that was an important part of my story that I, I felt like I could, I don't, at least now, I don't, you know, I don't mind sharing those stories and opening up and being honest about those things. Um, if you know, I mean it does cause me a little bit of anxiety, but I feel like for the greater good and for, for girls like especially now that I have a daughter, um, you know, I want girls to to read those stories and, and got everyone to read those stories and sort of have a have an idea that you know what girls go through when they're young.
0: I, I think you raise um a very, very important uh point there and kind of that goes to the heart of floodlit dreams as a publishing house, really. What we're interested in, what always interests us um uh, in people's stories, is how authentic they are, how real they're going to be about telling them, um, and they're going to tell things that sometimes are uncomfortable for the writer to to tell. Because, you know, there are many writers who say down the have said down the years, Camus and Orwell and people who've said, you know, if you're not feeling pain and if you're not telling truths, then you're doing it badly. So. You know there are elements in your story which are kind of uh, very poignant. You know about your sexuality, for example, about um, things that happen to women in their struggle um, through their rites of passage that, that don't happen to guys really. Um, that, that attracted us and the judges of the Vicki Orweiss Prize, and that's what what made the book what it is. It was it was warts and all through through that. So. Congratulations on that and 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 you're absolutely right. it is a story that needs to be told. those kind of things need need to be told for those who come after really to right. to tell them it's okay you know this this stuff is okay to feel and go through because um, someone's been through it before
1: yeah and it, it's it's it, it, the nice part about it for me now is um you know even friends my age you know women in their forties um and fifties um you know will say you know, I have such a similar story. I went through such, you know, something so similar and I never told anyone, Mm -hmm. never told a single person, even some of my very good friends. Um, So, um, so yeah, and even some guys too, like I actually, you know, interesting story, a guy who I knew at Harvard played soccer and um, baseball. After he read the book last week, uh, you know, he read it in like 24 hours. Um, He, uh, you know, he said, Susie, you know, I never joined a final club. It never felt right to me that women weren't allowed, and he said, I took so much criticism and mocking from my teammates and the other guys at at Harvard for making that choice um He's like, and I never told anyone I never talked about it before and so it was that that was something that was a surprise. I was never expecting to get that kind of a story back yeah. um so it's yeah it's really you know i I do feel I was hoping that by sharing stuff that's raw and um you know real that that I would get that response back. And I, and I have, and that's it, you know, it's makes it all worth
0: it. Well, I think it's interesting. We refer to the book in house at floodlit dreams as raw. We call the book raw because <laughs> it's the acronym of raised a warrior and it's kind of appropriate for it really. <laughs> um, so tell us you graduate from Harvard um, after uh, what is an interesting, exciting final year there. And then you're thrust out into the world and then kind of reality bites for you in many ways, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. You know, I just, I had been so focused on soccer my whole life. Um, I, I never, you know, I, I, I never really found anything else or let myself find something else or fall in love with anything else. Um, so I really had all my eggs in, in one basket, you know, and, um, I think that does happen a lot with athletes. Um, And, you know, the the danger is that when that sport ends, which inevitably it's going to end, you know, your body at some point is going to say, you pushed me too far. I've had enough. Right. Um, And um, and so, you know, I I just was left sort of with no direction and and no obvious career path. And, um, you know, I had a few things that I was interested in, like I was very interested in, in, you know, environmental issues. Um, but I also had my dad, who again, very intense and very tough, basically wouldn't, wouldn't hear anything. He didn't care to hear anything except if I was studying business. So I, um, so I, you know, I never really, and I, and I always did need his approval. Um, so I was never really fully engaged in whatever I was studying. Um, and yeah, so I, I just sort of floundered a lot. Um, after I graduated, I ended up getting very lucky um, and getting a job, uh, doing, I don't, I'm sure you guys had this, you did obviously have the same issues, but in, in the United States, we called it like the Y2K bug, right? Is that what you guys called it? The Y2K bug?
0: Millennium bug, we call it. The
1: millennium bug. Um, and so, you know, software consulting companies in the U S were hiring young people and, and training them to test for this Y2K bug. And, um, so I just was in the right place at the right time. And, uh, and I do think it, you know, see them seeing that I was a captain of the Harvard women's soccer team, um, you know, had a lot to do with the reason why they gave me They took a chance on me. And, um, so I had an amazing career in technology. I did all kinds of technology. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I, and I finally found something that I could sort of have pride in again and, and feel, um know, feel like I was going to be able to make a living for myself and support myself. And, and, um, and so, you know, I had a great, great career in technology, Um, I ended up working um, at DreamWorks, um, and um, a bunch of really amazing startups. And, um, and then, you know, I uh, ended up, you know, getting married to my boyfriend from from Harvard, who also played soccer at Harvard, and Um, you know, we were living um, in LA at the time and things were tough and, and, you know, um, the, 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 um, internet bubble had burst in San Francisco. And so he was struggling to find work and, um, you know, basically we ended up, he ended up getting an offer, a very good job offer in New York, which is where his family's from. And so we took it and he, and I, you know, we moved across country and I left my career in technology um, and, you know, we, uh, got married, got, pre- got pregnant and, you know, I sort of took this very, you know, left turn, um, and, uh, and went a completely different path, um, to sort of the, you know, more traditional role that might like very similar to the way my mom's life had gone. Um, and, um, you know, I, it was amazing. And I, we ended up having three, three children. Um, and, um, I wouldn't, you know, trade anything for the world. I, I definitely, um, I definitely, uh, you know, I was, I kept going back to the writing a little bit, um, in my spare time, um, not only as a way to, um, like get back into the, the mindset of soccer and be able to, as I'm thinking about soccer and writing about my teammates, um, I'm also very much reliving those moments and feeling all those feelings. Um, so it, it was a way to reconnect with the game. Um, and, um, and, you know, it was also very obviously therapeutic, right? Writing is therapeutic. Um, so, yeah, I got back into writing and, and uh, the book kind of evolved, you know, and I, as I started.
0: Did the actual game give you up or did you give the game up?
1: the game I
0: mean playing the game
1: you know that's that's a good question I think that I tried very hard to give up the game Um, I think you know people were I felt like society was telling me there was no place for me in the game after I was done playing Um, and you know I even had that and there's a story in the book where the doctor tells me um, after looking at the MRI of my leg, my injury, you know, he said, "Well, you know, soccer's not the most important thing in your life, right?" And I literally wanted to punch him in the face. I mean, I because I, it was it was the most important thing in my life, um, and um, so you know, but eventually, I did sort of come to terms with the idea that he that I was getting, you know, people were telling me that it's time to move on. It's time to move on. Um, and at that time, I didn't see that there was a way for me to stay connected to the game um, if I wasn't playing. And, um, so I kept trying to give it up, but, um, I just, I, you know, I just couldn't give it up. I don't know. It's just, you know, it's just a love. Once you, once you, once you find that love and you find that passion, um, it's, it's with you forever, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely did try to give it up. Um, and, you know, now luckily I've found this amazing community again, um, mm-hmm. of, of, you know, soccer people like me, women like me who, and, and everyone, you know, not just women, um, but they, who love the game. Um, and are, and our have found a way to use it to help people, really, you know, so, um, you know, found sort of sort of found a purpose, a new purpose for me in the game.
0: Mm. So how old are your kids and are they into soccer?
1: Um, so I have three. So my daughter is 15. Um my son is 13 and, and my little son is, uh, is 10 and they all love soccer actually right now. and uh, you know, we're in quarantine and, and, um, we're playing, we're playing a lot of very fierce soccer tennis in the basement. Um, and, uh, my, my 13 year old son right now is the King. He's very hard to beat. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they play my, the middle one, the one who's beating everybody at soccer tennis right now, um, is, uh, you know, it's a very good player. Um, and he was playing on what in the U S is called a, a development Academy, which was, you know, the, the, was, was the path in the national team or a professional program. But, um, that, that program, the development Academy was, was just announced that they are shutting it down a couple of weeks ago. No, um, sure. yeah. So, um, so we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll see. And then my other two are, are more into an, this American sport lacrosse, um, yeah. which is a great sport it's fun and they and they love it and you know i'm just happy they you know they have a team and they have this community and they're doing the tournaments and they're doing the whole they're they're going through that all that you know all that fun stuff just in a different sport i'm
0: always i'm always surprised how big lacrosse is in the states it's a kind of public good school thing for girls in 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 britain oh it is but it's a big university thing isn't it as well in it's on espn and all sorts
1: It is, it is, it's a big sport here. Yeah. It it originated on the East coast, you know, Mm -hmm. growing up in California, I had never seen it um, until I got to Harvard Mm -hmm. and um, but it's, it's really booming and you know, it is a fun sport and it's a, it's a pretty accessible sport. You don't need a lot of expensive Mm -hmm. um, equipment to play it. Uh, And at least on the girls' side, the boys' side, you have to have pads and helmet and things, but, but um
0: tell tell me about um there's a lovely story in the book about you and your daughter going into New York after u s a have won the women's world cup tell tell me about that i just that was always a story It was one of the stories that really drew me to the book when you first sent me the manuscript
1: yeah, that was a crazy day um so the u s women's national team had won the two thousand and fifteen world cup in canada and um and the mayor of new York had decided to throw the the big parade in New York City that, um, and they call it the Canyon of Champions, um, the ticker tape parade. And they had never done that for a female uh, sports team before. Um, and it was a very big deal. And we really weren't sure, I wasn't sure. And, and um, you know, my friends in, in the women's sports community weren't sure if they were going to agree to do it. Um, so they announced they were going to do it. And I was like, just it brings you so much hope when something that's women's sports related gets the recognition that it deserves. Right. Um, so, you know, we're, we a whole bunch of people actually too, all from our town, we all got on the train together. Um, which is also fun when you, when you realize that it's, it, it's almost like the, the wave is growing. Right. And then people are getting swept up into the energy and the joy. And, um, so we're all on the train. We, you know, we dressed up in our red, white, and blue and our face paint and our, our flags And, um, we, we knew that the team was going to be on, uh, like a morning talk show, this show called good morning America. So we went, um, and when we were on the train, my sister-in-law said that she knew one of the women that works was one of the producers at the show. And that woman had said, if the, if you have any kids who want to ask a question to the team, have them write down their questions, um, on paper or whatever. And, um. And we'll, we'll try to pick a few from the crowd. If it works out, if there's time, you know, if, if, this, you know, if, it, if it looks good on camera, or whatever, if the segment works out, um, they might have some of the kids get to ask the team questions. Um, so, you know, we arrive at the, it's very early in the morning and we arrive and you're waiting, 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 right? You can't really see what's going on. We did get to see the team as they, they pulled off the bus, um, which was exciting. And then we kind of all got separated in the crowd as the crowd was growing. And my sister-in-law took my niece and my daughter um, and tried to find her friend who was the producer on the show and um so they and then i really didn't see them again until after it was all over so i didn't know what happened and you know after it's over there's obviously a big rush we're holding on to kids trying not to lose people in the crowd um and we just jump on the subway and we go down all the way downtown because the parade was starting so i didn't really think about what had happened on the show and you know I thought maybe if they were lucky they got to see the team up close um and then the next day I I decide I'm gonna I'm gonna go and try to find the segment on YouTube and I see on YouTube that Maddie was got picked to sit on the ground inside um inside the barrier uh, you know in front of the team with five or six other kids I think um and she got to ask the team a question and and I when she asked her question, you couldn't hear it. It was a little like her microphone didn't work. So George Stephanopoulos had to repeat it because he had heard it. So he, re, he he laughed when he heard her say it. And then he said, and they said, What did she say? What did she say? And, um and then he repeated that she said, Don't you guys think you should get paid as much as the men. And mm-hmm. then the whole team started laughing, um you know, burst into laughter. And, you know, the crowd was laughing. But the question, uh, the question was never answered. Nobody ever really Nobody really ever took a second to say, what do you guys think? Like it never got serious. Like the, you know, right. the, the question was never answered. And then, the, so, yeah. Go
0: yeah, go on. Keep going. No, so
1: it was the, the interesting part to me now is that, so they won again, right? They won this summer yeah. and this, yeah. they had the same, they had the same thing. The team went to good morning America. They had the segment inside the studio though. Now I think cause it was probably easier to control. Um, and instead of the kids asking the questions, the, you know, the hosts, the, you know, they talked a little bit about the game, they talked about France, and then the main purpose of the segment was the equal pay issue, you know. Um, so it was a completely different situation than four years before when the question was posed by a little kid, a little girl, but no one bothered to answer it. Yeah. You know, it was seen as yeah. almost like a joke.
0: Yeah. Well, so. you must have been very proud of, of Maddie for a start to ask something quite as penetrating as that but also she was kind of four years ahead of her time as you say it kind of brings us to where we are now with women's soccer and and that is the big story in in the U.S. at the moment is the way that the the U.S. Soccer Federation is resisting so much and and actually making a bit of a fool of itself by um you know just being completely out thought and outmaneuvered by people like Megan Rapinoe.
1: Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's definitely disappointing the way the Federation has handled um, the lawsuit. And, and, and to be honest, it's been disappointing the way they've been treating the team since the beginning of the team. Um, They always believed that the men's team was going to be the team that put us soccer on the map in world soccer. And they just haven't really realized that that's not what happened. (laughs) You know, the women's team really is that team. And, um, and you know, they're just still not treated equally. Um, and, you know, it's it's going to take time. I mean, now, you know, obviously, uh, Carlos Cordero, the president was forced to resign. Um, and he was really forced to resign because of the spo- the sponsors decided that they were going to put pressure on him to, to step down because they basically disagreed with his, you know, sexist remarks um, in the uh, in the court filings in the defense. So um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's good and bad. I mean, I think it's good that his, his remarks were so extreme that they couldn't be tolerated um, and people couldn't ignore them anymore. Um, but, you know, then, you know, he's, he's still on the board of U.S. soccer as a past president. It's not like he was removed completely. Um, and, um, Cindy Parlow, who was the vice president, um, is now Cindy Parlow Cone, um, and who is now the president of US Soccer, she actually was a 99er. She played in, in um in the 99 World Cup. Um very good soccer player. And um, you know, she she has a lot on her plate now, right? I mean she stepped into she just stepped into a, a crazy situation. So um but the team is behind her. Fouty and Miaham and um Christine Lilly and all the leaders of the of the 99ers and the leaders of the national team are all behind her and and believe in her. Um, So, you know, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully the culture is changing.
0: I just got a couple more questions, but I'd like Seth to, to ask a couple. Seth, you come in here. What do you think the next steps are then, Susie, in terms of women's soccer? Um, And would you say that the U.S. is ahead of the U.K.?
1: Ah, good question. Um, So the next steps for world soccer, I think, I mean, so there's this woman named Amanda Vandervoort who um, w- played at uh, the University of Wyoming here in the States. And then she became a coach. Um, she coached at the college level and um, she worked for several of the first women's pro leagues here. Um, she ended up working for the MLS for a long time. Um, she works for uh, AFDP global, um, which is uh, the uh, Prince Ali bin Al Hussein's um, amazing organization that. Um, um you know is trying to reform uh world soccer um and now she just got the job last summer um and she's the new head of women's football for FIFPro, which is the global union for um for professional players um, so you know the first thing she did when she got to office was she started uh doing writing a research paper um and just completely analyzing where the game is at um for women and um, that report is almost out. Parts of it actually have been, have been put out to FIFA, which is why FIFA just announced that they were not gonna, um, they were still committed to their two billion or billion dollar um, investment in women's football in the next two years. Um, so you know, I think the next step is, is to um, listen, obviously to people like Amanda who are doing the research and finding the data and showing what needs to happen and showing what, where the worst inequalities are and, and work on those first um and you know she's doing an amazing job and and the and the network around her is is getting tighter and tighter um and um so i think then you know the next few things are just to to follow the lead of the people that are that are really um really taking us in the right directions now um you know the you know it was sad because i think i think it was yesterday or the day before um that there was the first team in england a third division team that folded so that was the first team that's folded because of, because of this pandemic, um, which you know the FA had warned they thought would happen, um, and um, you know so you know the game the game obviously still had a long way to go in order to become you know in, in terms of equality, but you know this pandemic is gonna it's gonna set us back and it's gonna stall our progress a little bit, but um, you know and and it is a concern, uh, you know unfortunately um male decision makers are going to prioritize male sports um so you know i think you know the important thing is just to make sure that when it does happen and when when women's sports are disproportionately defunded um i think we just need to make sure everybody knows about it and um and keep you know keep pushing forward and and uh and and try not to let those things happen twice
0: i think that's the 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 worrying thing at the moment, you're right. And the, the team was called AFC filed. Um, yes. And they're the first to go, but, uh, there are worrying signs that the first to cut be cut is, is often, um, the women's soccer program in, in, right. in club. And it's a double-edged thing when somebody like Manchester city and arsenal, they take on the women's side. It's great because they give them priority. They give them access to training and, um, but equally, if you're allied to to a, a big men's football um, establishment, then you do risk being cut. So right. you have to hope and, that won't happen.
1: Right, and and you know, I don't know if you guys would agree with me, but I, you know, I take. Um, I just I don't see, and from my perspective, you know. They're not spending that much money on the women's team <laughs> you um, know in right. terms of their in terms of their entire you know the whole budget yeah. um, so you know dismantling the women's program to me you know actually doesn't really make that much sense um, financially uh, you know I'm I, you know I, I wish that weren't the way I wish that you know I wish to be honest that FIFA would say yes we're, we're standing behind our billion dollar investment. Um, but we also, you know, we're gonna we're gonna keep it. You know, we're gonna punish the the, um, we're gonna punish the teams that unfairly dismantle their women's programs. Um, or, we, you know, maybe that's not the right way of phrasing it. But, um, you know, I just wish the leaders would would just keep. You know, would, put some would, kind of safeguards in place so that can't happen.
0: Yeah. Would you say there's actually an opportunity with the pandemic? Um, I mean, there's been reports about, actually, it could be great for young players, for example, um, clubs may, may be willing, more willing to take a chance on young players. Do you think there's potentially any opportunity for women's soccer to kind of fill a void that comes from the pandemic?
1: Um, you know, that depends. I mean, unfortunately, I don't know if that's in our control, you know. Um, I, I do think that the, the programs are less expensive to maintain. So, you know, yeah, that could be seen as an opportunity. Um I also think that they're they're smaller and more nimble. Um, the programs, like we, you know, we're friends with Elise LaHue, who is the general manager of Sky Blue FC here in, in the in the NWSL. Um, and you know, they haven't had to lay anybody off. Um, you know, they're they're doing fine. Obviously, they're disappointed because they were supposed to play in Red Bull Arena this year for the first time, which, you know, was just mind-blowingly exciting. Um, but you know, she's she's okay, and they're okay, and they're, you know, a small organization, and they're, they're able to maneuver around it, um, which I think is one of the advantages of being a smaller organization. So, um, you know, and again, like, you know, there's no live sports right now, right? So, um, you there's there, there should be an opportunity to maybe not, maybe not for equality, but at least for equity. Um, you know, and, and in the United States, I don't I'm not 100% sure if you guys have the same situation. But in the United States, only 4% of sports media um, is, you know, women's sports. So everything we see, 96% of what we see in sports media is men's sports. Um, And, you know, so this is an opportunity to balance that out. There's no reason why, you know, we can't be showing more women's sports content right now.
0: You know, women's women's soccer shouldn't have to pitch itself. It shouldn't, you know, it's an entity in itself. It shouldn't be compared with, with men's soccer. It's an entertainment in itself and the World Cup last summer was, was very exciting. Women's soccer in, in England with the, the um, you know, the Women's Super League and everything was, was uh, really, really taking off. But you've also worked on a documentary that, um, that you know, we're hopefully all going to be seeing soon. And you've been around the world with that documentary. Just pitch us, women's soccer, what you found and how far it's come.
1: Yeah, so we've learned a lot. We, um, you know, I was obviously very uh, lucky to get to work with Kelly um, de Luca, who's one of Pele's daughters on this documentary that she was creating. Um, she came at it from a, a Brazilian uh, women's soccer perspective. Um, she realized about maybe eight or 10 years ago that she was never seeing any women players, you know? I mean, she did find Marta. Um, but she also recognized quickly that Marta's financial trajectory was nothing like her father's, right? Um, so she started to dig into it. And, and, um, and um, so she, she came at it from that perspective, but sort of came to the same, you know, awakening where women are invisible, really, in the game still in a lot of ways. And um, so she was looking at it that way. Um, and obviously, I came from, you know, an Amer- the American system um and um so we just wanted to see we wanted to see what professional women's soccer looked like in other parts of the world um and we also um she also got in touch with this young amazing young brazilian woman named Lais arujo who her brother-in-law had scouted um and, we, and she was the first female uh, player from brazil that her brother-in-law um had noticed and um so laice Lysa's story became um, like the emotional uh, pull through the story. The, you know, the, she's the main character, um, and then what we do is we try to show what her life could look like in all these different parts of the world if she did decide, if she if she did, you know, if she was able to play pro. Um, so we got to see, you know, what what women's uh, the women's team looks like at Man City. We got to go to PSG. We got to go to Juventus. Um, we got to go to Africa, Zanzibar, and, um, and we got to go to the Orlando Pride in the States. Um, and so basically, you know, the state of women's soccer around the world obviously is different everywhere. And the barriers, the barriers these girls are facing are different everywhere. Um, but um, we, what we also saw were there, there, everywhere we went, there were both men and women who believe in the value of the game and believe that the entertainment value is there, like, like what you were saying, um and you know are spending their basically their own money and their own free time to promote the game and build it up as best they can because they believe in it um and um so that that's really what our biggest takeaway was was all these amazing people that we met that are um you know now thank goodness for technology are starting to connect with each other um and work together and find synergies and and share you know marketing efforts and you know um and best practices and things so um So you know we we know there's a long way to go. Um, There's still a lot of barriers, even you know like the story in Iran where the women are still not even allowed to watch games in stadiums. Um, So there's obviously still a long way to go. But um, Mm. but uh, you know as the network grows and the network is tighter and we have people like Amanda at the the, you know leading the way. um, It's it's we're going to start growing. I mean the the setback of the pandemic is definitely a a bummer for lack of a better word. and concerning, and it's gonna show that, you know, we are first on the chopping block still. Um, but, but, you know, we're not, it's not like we're gonna stop playing. Girls just aren't gonna stop playing. We're, you know, we, we love the game too much, just like anyone else. And, um, you know, we'll recover and, and we'll continue to grow.
0: Well, thank you, Susie. Um, been a fantastic hour or so um, mm-hmm. talking, about, talking about the book. Um, we're very proud of it. It's called Raise the Warrior. And um, I'll draw your attention.
1: It's bigger than I thought it was going to be.
0: It's big in more ways than one. (laughs) Um, And on the front, um, Billie Jean King, who Susie has been in contact with, describes it, says that sports literature needs more stories of women who dare, more inspirational stories like Susie's. And this is why we've published it, really, because there is a dearth of women's sports literature. And I know Vicky, my late wife, Vicky would have been very proud of the fact that we're publishing a book like this. Uh, She'd have been very proud of you, Susie, and you should be very proud of yourself. Thank you very much.
1: You're going to make me cry. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so, I'm so proud. You know, I'm so proud and and honored. And um, obviously just, I'll never be able to thank you enough, um, you know, for believing in me and giving me this opportunity. It's, just there's no words
0: we're gonna leave it there (laughs) thank you so